You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's October 29th. The COVID generation, Gen C as some are calling them, is growing up amid extraordinary challenges that could shape their health, development, and well-being for years. But how much do we really know about how children are doing these days? Is enough attention being paid to their education and mental health? Have reopening plans taken kids' needs into consideration? And what could be done to help prepare children for the next pandemic? Well, the reality is there is no comprehensive system for measuring children's physical health, mental health, and social and cognitive development. That's why researchers from RAND, UCLA, and the University of Pennsylvania developed GDP2, or Gross Developmental Potential. Now, we're all familiar with the original GDP, Gross Domestic Product, which focuses on economic production, but GDP2 is different. It's meant to be a companion measure to GDP, measuring the development of human potential in communities. How exactly can you measure human potential? GDP2 considers a wide range of factors, from people's ability to meet basic needs, such as food and housing, to their ability to develop important social and emotional skills, like adapting to change and connecting with others. These are the kind of skills that allow everyone in society to thrive. And the pandemic has shown just how important they are. There is more research that needs to be done to develop and test GDP, too. But researchers are hopeful that this framework can ultimately provide data that will assist policymakers and communities in helping children flourish and, in turn, advance the economy and society in future decades. Prescription drug shortages are a persistent policy and public health concern in the United States and around the world. There is broad international agreement about the importance of mitigating or preventing these shortages, but efforts to understand and track them have been fragmented. As a result, it's often unclear whether drug shortages are truly global in nature. A new RAND report provides some data that helps to fill this gap. It finds that U.S. drug shortages are associated with modest decreases in the domestic volume of drugs, about 8%, and modest increases in domestic drug prices, about 7%. But there is limited evidence to suggest that international volume and price changes are linked to shortages here in the U.S. This finding suggests that it's worth exploring ways to leverage the supply of drugs in other countries when responding to U.S. shortages. More than half of all new U.S. Army recruits come from states where marijuana is legal, at least for medicinal use. But using marijuana still disqualifies anyone who wants to enlist, so recruits who have used marijuana in the past must ask for a waiver. To find out how wavered recruits perform, RAND researchers looked at data on thousands of soldiers who received waivers, not only for past marijuana use, but also for other disqualifying marks on their records, such as depression or anxiety disorders. 
The researchers found no evidence that these soldiers were riskier across the board than any others. Importantly, the waiver program makes enlisting possible for a lot of people. Without waivers, people with even mild depression or anxiety disorders, several million Americans between the ages of 18 and 25, could not join the army. Nor could anyone treated for ADHD as a teenager, which describes nearly 10% of children. A failed drug test for marijuana or a single conviction for possession would also screen people out, blocking the roughly one-third of American 18-year-olds who say they have used marijuana at least once in the past year. One of the study's authors, Michael Hansen, put it this way, quote, There are always people with quote-unquote good characteristics who do poorly, and there are always people without those characteristics who do well. There's always room for improvement, but the Army is doing pretty well with its waivers. Where the Army could make some changes, however, is in how it talks about waivers to policymakers in the press. As social standards evolve around marijuana use or mental health care, for example, the Army could do more to demonstrate that wavered recruits aren't necessarily worse recruits. Sensors with unparalleled precision. Powerful new methods for cryptography. Lightning-fast computers. Emerging quantum technology could have major implications for national security and commerce. In a new analysis, Rand's Edward Parker examines the potential applications of these technologies and which countries are leading the way in the race to develop them. Parker finds that while certain commercial and military applications of quantum sensors could become ready within the next few years, most of the highest-impact quantum technologies are likely still many years away. In reviewing the key international players, Parker identifies China and the United States as standouts, with China leading the way in quantum communication and the U.S. ahead of the pack when it comes to quantum computing. However, Parker notes that the European Union, the United Kingdom, and Canada all have specific initiatives for quantum-based research. And currently, there is no clear world leader in quantum technology overall. Supervised drug consumption sites are places where people who use drugs can do so under the supervision of trained staff. There are more than 100 of these facilities, also called supervised injection facilities or overdose prevention sites, in operation around the world, but they're illegal in the United States. As the opioid crisis continues, a growing number of communities are interested in opening supervised consumption sites, And according to RAND experts, if federal officials wanted to make it easier for these communities to pilot and evaluate these facilities, there are options to do so. One potential path is for the U.S. Department of Justice to treat supervised consumption sites like storefronts in some states that legally sell cannabis. Think back to 2012, when Colorado and Washington legalized marijuana. Shortly thereafter, the Department of Justice issued guidance that, although this activity was prohibited under federal law, federal prosecutors should focus only on a set of specific enforcement priorities, including preventing cannabis distribution to minors and preventing cannabis revenues from going to criminal organizations. Analogous guidance could be issued in the case of supervised consumption sites. 
It's true that supervised consumption sites alone will not solve the overdose crisis that is largely a result of illegally produced fentanyl. But according to our researchers, these sites could allow some communities to try something new in response to an extremely challenging and overwhelming problem. Before we wrap up today's episode, we have an announcement to share. This week, our president and CEO, Michael D. Rich, announced that he will retire in 2022 following a search for his successor. Rich joined Rand in 1975 as a summer intern. He worked here as a researcher, and he went on to hold several senior leadership positions, eventually becoming Rand president in 2011. Under his leadership over the last decade, Rand has seen annual revenues grow from $250 million to more than $350 million. We've raised more than $190 million in philanthropic gifts as part of the Tomorrow Demands Today campaign launched last year. And our researchers have tackled such policy challenges as healthcare costs, international security, the COVID-19 pandemic, and gun policy in America. Additionally, Rich personally co-led our research effort to address truth decay, the decline of facts in American public life. Rich called his decades of service to Rand a dream career. Quote, From my earliest days, I've been passionate about the role Rand plays in society and inspired by the people with whom I've had the opportunity to work and meet, he said. There's no perfect time to leave a job you care so much about, but I've always wanted the next president of Rand to have the benefit of entering the role at a time of organizational strength and opportunity. That certainly characterizes Rand now. On a personal note, we both considered it an honor to work under Michael's leadership. That's right. And we look forward to celebrating his extraordinary career in the coming months. That's it for Policy Currents today. We'll be back next week with more insights from Rand Research and Commentary. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered in this episode, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast.